Well, my name is Shireen Nanjaya and I'm here to uh, host a, a Q&A and I'm delighted to uh, welcome Tracy Malone uh, and Ed Whitmore, our two writers. Um, congratulations on such a gripping piece of television. Can I just, before we start, do a show of hands? How many people here were already familiar with the story of John Christie and Rillington Place? So most people, how many weren't? Yeah, probably younger people as well. Um, but I, I, I warn, a warning that um, there will be a few spoilers uh, tonight, but may, maybe we should uh, start by, if you could just tell us a bit about the story of John Christie and why it's so important in our history. I think um, when they abolished capital punishment uh, in the UK, the miscarriage of justice that led to Tim Evans being hung was, was a kind of cornerstone of the argument to abolish. So it has a, a place as a kind of watershed in the, in the um, British criminal justice history. So from a kind of from a journalistic point of view, it's a, it's a, it's a huge um, case. And obviously, we get into that in episodes two and three. Um, but none of it would have happened without the extraordinary personality of, of John Christie. And so... The way we approached it, like from the beginning, was really to come at it from a place of character, um, uh, and rather than sort of um, a kind of A to Z um, chronology of the events, was to see how he deceived everybody from, from his wife to the top legal minds in the country, and, and, and as a result, um, Timothy Evans was hung. And so really we wanted to understand that character, um, and that was the impetus, I suppose, to... Um, look at him first of all through the eyes of Ethel, his wife, and then through the eyes of uh, Timothy Evans and, and Beryl, his his wife, and um, and there and and you know, which obviously you see the, their arrival at the end of episode one. They become the focus in episode two, and then sort of finally, almost like a sort of wide-angle lens shot that's panning in on something, to end up on Christie in episode three and to sort of take the take the filter off, and, and we kind of knew that. There was only so much crystal you could handle. It's like staring into the sun, um, and that informed the decision not to see the murders in, in the first episode because kind of where do you go from that? So it's like a slow push in on this extraordinary man, um, and um, Ethel seemed like the you know the question of why didn't she? Why did she put up with him? What did she know? What did she know but not want to know? All those things seem really fascinating. So. We started with her, and I think, you know, uh, you know, Tracy, you want to say a bit more about that? Um, yeah, I think we, we, you know, we, we came to the case, um, we knew kind of generally, or I knew generally about the case itself, but I didn't really know the ins and outs of the case, and coming to it fairly fresh, I just became fascinated, as Ed said, by, you know, how this this man got away with, with murder for so long and was burying bodies inside a house that was shared with other families and other people. And, you know, his character was so incredible that it just, you know, it was, it was, it, it, the, the, the story came easily because there was there's so much character from every direction. It was, you know, it was like we couldn't really have made, it, made up a, a story like that. And I think, I'm trying to understand why a wife would protect a husband in that situation was something that was quite fascinating and we really wanted to get into the characters and try and understand how that could have happened and we, we, we went back to as much source material as we could find 
um, statements and evidence and we, we really wanted to try and get to know the characters as much as we possibly could and as I'd said, you know, just really look at it first from Ethel's point of view and stay back from Christy and, and try and kind of keep him at a bit of a distance so we could experience their experience of not knowing that he was a killer and then go into Timothy Evans for episode two and then finish with, with Christy in episode three and get up close and personal with him by the end. Yeah, because yeah, I remember. Oops, <laughs> I remember uh, watching Ten Rillington Place with David At uh, David Attenborough. I just thought Richard Attenborough. That would have been interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Been interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in, <laughs> in the part of um, John Christie, but he was creepy in that from the beginning. But here you could see how he could have fooled and controlled Ethel. Yeah, well, that exactly. He was a charismatic character and. Um, you know, he'd come from a kind of lower middle class background. His father was a, a carpet designer and he had kind of um, aspirations. And, um, you know, he loved, he was in the Scouts when he was a young boy and he loved uniforms and, you know, he loved this kind of, the, the, the role of, of that, that, that gave you in the power, I suppose. And, um, uh, yeah, so he, we just thought he was a charmer as well as being, um, you know, this kind of, this killer. And and and, the, and and lots of the stories that we've heard about him, you know, he really was kind of marmite. Some people said, you know, he was, he was really kind of a horrible character, and he had a clammy hand. When he shook your hand, it kind of sent a shiver up your spine. But other ca other people thought he was really charming and funny. So it was a really interesting kind of mix of character. How much did you find out about Ethel, and how much was that artistic license? I mean, that scene in the the doctor's surgery would. She was told to sort of look after her husband more, and you know she's being a bit complacent. All, all artistic license. In that yeah. Particular <laughs> I mean, yeah. But, but it was probably true of the time, was it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, we had a challenge with her because I think if an audience feel that the protagonist, and she's definitely the protagonist in the first episode, if an audience feel the protagonist is, is slow or stupid, they disengage uh, with that character. And so we really wanted to show that he was very clever. He had an answer for everything. Um, and to show the kind of ebb and flow of her hope, and then that hope sort of uh, feels vindicated for a time, and then it's dashed, and then it kind of comes back. And that cycle, which felt very real to us, um, was a really diff difficult balancing act, really, because, um, and ultimately, we felt by the end of the episode, we had to, to reach a place where she sort of made her pact with the devil. You know, it's almost not like she knew for sure that he was a killer, particularly uh, he, that he killed Muriel Eady, but she, 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 you know, she knows where she doesn't want to know. It's that, it's that kind of accommodation with yourself, you know, an accommodation with your reality. It's too late for her to meet someone else. And in a funny way, she doesn't want to meet someone else because they're, what, bon what we sort of, um, we, I think this was, this was actually borne out by the research we did. What bonded them was that both they were both bright, they were both articulate, and they both had a sense of sort of, I guess, I, I guess that they were sort of like born on the wrong side of the tracks by accident, and they should have been born into sort of you know a higher social circle. So they're both quite snooty, um, and they both kind of um, partook in a sort of shared fantasy, if you like, that of respectability, uh, and 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 in a funny way, they both needed each other to kind of maintain that fiction. And so, um, you know, when she goes to the pub and she sees him there, that's just really shocking for her because that's the sort of beginning of the rupture. Um, 
and I think we were just absolutely blessed to get Sam Moulton playing that role because so often she's reacting and so often you know we had to trust that you'd understand what she was thinking and what she was feeling um, you know it's a time when people did not wear their hearts on their sleeves they didn't sort of talk about their feelings it's a million miles away from from the sort of you know um, social media generation that we live in now where it's you know it is that Andy Warhol thing of you know everybody's important uh, for 15 minutes it, it, so we so we want to be truthful to that time and so we really you know if we hadn't had Sam Morton in that role I don't think it would have worked uh, or someone of that calibre and there's very few people of that calibre the same is true of Tim as well but I think particularly in this first episode that you've seen we really um, you know have a huge sort of artistic debt of gratitude to Sam because I think she emotionally carries you through from start to finish absolutely absolutely and and tim roth and um, he he was menacing you, you could feel the the charm but the the control and and, and the menace under the surface i, I know that uh, writers don't get a say in the casting but uh, would they have been your dream team right from the beginning no we we absolutely did get a say in the casting oh we, did you yeah yeah we we were involved you know heavily with that from the beginning and they were absolutely in our first very short list of, of, of choices so we were really fantastically lucky to, to get them yeah we were thrilled to have them and glasgow i mean i, I don't know about, about you but i was going that's bath street <laughs> where's that <laughs> park that, yeah. <laughs> you always tend to i, I watched it uh, last night and i was freeze-framing and sort of going back trying to identify you you were at the um some of the filming were you uh just in glasgow? The, just for the beginning yeah just to see it set off yeah yeah, it, oh. is a, it is a, a perfect sort of uh, backdrop for Victorian London, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it looks fantastic. Well, it's not Victorian, but you know what I mean. Yeah, mm. I think it works really, really well. Yeah. yeah, obviously that was the big challenge was that Rillington Place doesn't exist anymore, so to build that set was, uh, was a, huge, a huge thing. So a, a set was actually built? The exterior was a set, the street was a set. Right. But to kind of the second level, and then after that there was some CGI. But yeah, we built the whole set on the lot, and and then the interiors here as well. So right. yeah, it looked all looked pretty amazing. Can I throw out to the audience? Has anyone got any questions or points they would like to to bring up? I can't see terribly well. We're happy to hog it. Oh yes, there we are. Um, Ah, yes. Why, why had they not seen each other for nine years? Well, we don't know definitively why they hadn't seen each other, but um, they'd been living in Halifax and Christy had been in some trouble. He'd been in and out of a prison. He'd stolen postal orders when he worked for the post office and um, a few various things. So he'd had a rocky time with Ethel and they'd gone to stay with his parents and he'd stolen something from them or they'd accused him of stealing something. So it was already kind of in the off uh, when they were newlyweds, essentially. Uh, but um, so Christy came down to London, potentially perhaps under the guise of finding a job or, you know, so he sort of left Ethel standing really in Halifax and, and disappeared and she didn't, she didn't hear from him and so she, she, she went looking for him. And uh, so that's kind of, that, that, that sort of did happen. So going back to the other question that you asked about how much of it is real, we, we did use kind of tent 
polls as much as we could of anything that we knew that had really happened and then kind of filled in the gaps. And episode one is more gap-filling than episodes two and three because we knew less about Ethel. And there were conflicting stories. Some stories would say she was just terrified of Christy. Other stories would say that her and Christy were running an abortion clinic together. So, you know, we had to kind of make up our own minds as much, you know, in, in a sense. Because there was a reference there to her having lost a baby. She said he was never the same after she lost the baby. Yeah, and that came from the research that she'd said that she had lost a baby. So, you know, we, that wasn't proven evidence. We, we tried to kind of corroborate everything we could, but that we had one um, statement about that, about her losing a baby early on. So, we, you know, that was something that we thought kind of helped to possibly explain some yes. of her... Decisions. Yeah, yeah, and uh, on the subject of the n other nine years, yeah. we, we um, got an FBI profiler to have a look at the evidence um, and um, really to ask him, essentially to ask him if he thought Christie did it on his own and he, he, he absolutely thought he had. Um, but more generally, we, we talked about that nine-year period and most serial killers uh, are driven by a sort of psychosexual compulsion and um, so they tend to be in their 20s or 30s, sometimes 40s, but you know, Christy was, was 53 when he was hung. So he was, so the idea that in those nine years he didn't kill anyone seems un unlikely, um, to be honest. And I think that's one of the kind of enduring mysteries about him is what happened in those nine years. I mean, there's a couple of con convictions, there's a conviction for GBH, so there's a a vague sense of where he was and the kind of social milieu he was mixing in, but really it's this kind of terrifying nine-year blank. And given you know what he did, uh, you know it's, uh, the amount of killings he committed after Ethel came down to London and they moved in together, and you know the bodies were in the walls of Willington Place. You kind of think it's just hard to believe that nobody had killed anyone in those nine years. You know, and who were they and where are they and what happened? But you know, there's no evidence either way. Yeah. There was, someone oh, there was someone else over there, yes. I have a script writing practical question, I guess, because I feel like every time I learn from a different professor about screenplay writing, I get like conflicting information. So I was wondering, from experience, like when you're writing the script, how much do you feel like you dictate the visual style and shots, or like how much of that is pure director and your script is just dictating the story? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it's, a, it's absolutely valid question. Um, I. I I think that in this particular story, um, the location of the house was always a character. Um, and actually, you know, that wasn't like a great idea of ours. Everybody who went there and saw it, and every sort of account of the place is that it was like this sort of horrible doll's house. It was tiny, um, the walls shook, you could hear everything. Um, and so I suppose in this particular case, without it taking any credit at, away from Craig Ferreras, our director at all, because he's a genius, he did an amazing job. I think we were, when we were looking for the directors, we know we had a short list of directors and we interviewed them and I think, I, we worked with Craig before on an episode of Silent Witness that we wrote, at shot in Scotland actually, unusually, uh, uniquely in fact. Um, and Craig, he's just, it's a cliche to say someone's cinematic, but a lot of television directors are fantastic with performance, but not so strong on, on, on you know, on the visual side of things, to be, to be honest. Um, and Craig is both, and mm. as soon as Craig started, you know, he came to the meeting, as soon as he got, opened his wallet and got the photos, his photos out, his sort of inspirational ideas, we were like, 
it's got to be Craig because you know we knew that he would deliver that. Yeah, I mean, I think he we wrote a lot of atmosphere into the script because we had to. It was that was kind of key. Without it, it wouldn't have really worked, or we wouldn't have been able to sell it. I think, and so we obviously we would never say you know this is the shot, put the camera here. But we did. There was a lot of atmosphere within the script. Yeah. How how do you for someone who doesn't know about these things? How do you write atmosphere into a script? <laughs> Well, partly well, I think, yeah, I yeah. think in this particular story it was quite easy because, you know, we took this, we, 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 bizarrely actually, we were on holiday in San Francisco, weren't we, when we, when we had this idea about doing the POVs thing, and, you know, you, if you have an idea, you kind of know if, if a load of, if a load of sort of, it's like a trunk, tree trunk, and then if a lot of branches come off the tree trunk quite quickly, you, you probably know it's a good idea, and if they don't, you probably know it's not, and I think that the, when we came up with the idea of the POVs, and we just, we just realised that, you know, um, to have Ethel come down to London, she's never, you know, she's a provincial woman. She's never been to London before, and then it's, and the war's going on, and so there's all these extraordinary ex thing experiences that she goes through. Um, so I suppose that we very much wrote it from her point of view. So when she goes to the air raid shelter, to the tube station, it's like you know we we wrote that and very much in her shoes because that was what we were trying to do, and so that actually made it easier to write the atmosphere, I think. But often you write these things and then the director comes in and kind of goes, yeah, yeah, who cares what the writer thinks? Yeah. <laughs> this is what I want to do, which is valid, you know, and that's, that's part of the push and pull of writing and direct writers and directors. But I think with Craig, it was like he absolutely got what we were trying to do and then sort of realised it in a way that, you know, just took, our, took our breath away, even though we'd written the scripts, because he's very good. I want to ask you, you've, we've talked about Ethel and the fact that you had to do a lot of guesswork really in filling, filling in the blanks but the next two episodes the next point of view is Timothy Evans uh, in episode two and then finally John Christie for which there, there is a lot of evidence I mean tell me about the kind of research that you did for that well we you know we when we first started we read all the books and we realized that there were you know books with extremely different views there was Kennedy who really totally believed that Christie was the one and Evans was innocent. That was Ludovic Kennedy. Yeah, Ludovic Kennedy. Yeah. And then there were other books, some of which were even being written um, in the last few years, which were, you know, saying that Evans was a strangler in his own right. And there was a c it was a coincidence that these two men were living in the same house. So we s suddenly felt this responsibility that we wanted to be telling the right story. And we just decided we want to go right back to the archives and look at the autopsy reports and look through statements and trial transcripts and basically get hold of any kind of e e all of the, the original material that we could and then try and corroborate as much of it as we could from different statements. So the, the episodes two and three are much more based in, in fact than episode one is. Um, so we, we went to the archives, we, we got as much as we could, we looked through the autopsy reports. As Ed said, we got an American FBI profiler involved because we felt very strongly that it was almost impossible that Tim was involved in what had happened because the MOs were exactly the same, the way the bodies were stored after they'd been murdered were exactly the same, and we just felt very strongly that had the police kept searching the house and found the other bodies, that Tim would never have been in the frame because it was, it was just too coincidental. Um, and so we really wanted, 
fresh eyes on that. And so we went to an, an FBI pro ex-FBI profiler that Ed had worked with before and, 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 and sent him all the original material as well. And he became fascinated with the case. He didn't know anything about it and completely concurred with, with, with our thoughts on it. And um, and and then so that was kind of that was one kind yeah, of yeah. One of the big questions was is, is is why did Evans confess, isn't it? That's one of the things that we like as writers. You know, we kind of like you've got to believe in your characters, and the fact that it happened is no doesn't really get you out of jail. You know, you, it's got to work within the drama, and it is a really extraordinary thing that he did he did confess to his wife's murder, and how did that happen? Um, and it was interesting because Greg said, you know, the thing is, if often with people who've got poor education or no education, and they're suddenly in a situation where they're being grilled by the police and they're tired and they're scared and they're stressed. You know, he said he's, as an FBI profiler, he's been all around America, kind of. And I would have to often tell detectives and local police forces that, you know, the 17-year-old kid that they've got, who they're sure did it, some horrendous murder, actually probably didn't do it. Even though he said it, he just wants to... He just wants it to stop. He wants to go home. So he said he'd seen that sort of thing before. And I think also the other aspect that he picked up on that is a sort of big part of uh, the story in episode two is that Christie was fantastic, not only at kind of creating this persona of a kind of um, a man with a slightly mysterious medical past, which was entirely fictitious, you know, um, but he had this kind of uh, persona of this kind of respectable man who, who, who'd been a, war, a doctor in the war, um, and he was very clever in the sense that when, so when, um, there's some spoilers here, but when Beryl wanted an abortion, he sort of, he sort of said, well, if you're going to do it, you know, your decision, but if you're going to do it, don't go to the Sawbones and Trade Street because he'll kill you. If you have to, if you're really mind's made up, you know, I'll, I'll be a friend, I'll be a neighbour and I'll, I'll do it for you. So he sort of positioned himself as an option to her. Uh, and, and as a sort of an act of kindness, really, and then, but of course, what he really wanted was to get her, to be alone with her, with a you know, in a dark room and a locked door. That's what he really wanted. And then, so when she when she when she died, and when Tim found her, uh, her body, um, he was able to sort of create this narrative whereby it was like, well, I tried to help, you know, I did my best for you. I'm sorry it didn't work out. Obviously, it would be totally unfair if I got the blame. So you know, he kind of pulled this extraordinary feat of not only this man lost his wife but he he he, 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 you know, he managed to persuade him to carry the can for something that he plainly hadn't done and we just thought wow you know what a what an extraordinary um personality you have to be to pull that off and again tim i think and, is, and also you know, that. to you know to have more sense of who tim was as a character um we went to meet his half sister and and her son just to get more kind of an, of an understanding, because Greg said to us, was Tim a malleable character? And he was asking us these questions, and we said, well, from what we're reading, it seems that he was, but um, then we went to meet his, his half-sister and, um, uh, and had a, a very kind of emotional afternoon with her, talking through the case and, and, you know, the ins and outs of what had gone wrong, and, you know, and she told us about, you know, her and Tim and you know, small moments that were really lovely and how much he cared for the baby and, you know, so it was a really heartbreaking time to actually realise that this was a true story because so much of what we write is made up and, you know, it was, a, it was an incredible, kind of, incredibly kind of humbling afternoon. Anyone else? Yes. 
dramatise it then and not tell it as a documentary? Well, you know, we're drama writers, so that's what we do, you know. Um, and I think if you, you know, if, if somebody presents you with a, with a, with a story, uh, a, a real life story, um, that speaks to you, uh, you know, and the characters fascinate you, and you think you it's a it's a world or a character that you want to spend the next year or in the development for two two or three years actually on this. Um, the thing about doing yeah. a documentary now is that a lot of, apart from Tim's half sister, I mean, a, a lot of the the people that yeah, you'd want to speak to yeah. are no longer alive. Yeah. Ludovic Kennedy did do the documentary. I think that was instrumental in getting the yeah. the, the death penalty. Yeah. Abolished, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he was amazing. His book, is, we, I mean, as I said, our approach was not to go down the sort of forensic, journalistic focus just on the miscarriage of justice, um, because we were Christie was our primary subject, I suppose. But um, his book, uh, his Ludovic Kennedy's book, is incredible in, in the way he sort of forensically shows how the police essentially developed a narrative. As soon as Evans confessed, they had developed this narrative, and nothing could shake them. You know, nothing and what was extraordinary was that you know that didn't just play out in the police station it played out in the old bailey with the finest oxbridge educated sort of legal minds you know he really christie was a kind of olympic level liar and manipulator uh, and when you read the transcript for the trial and he's doing this thing where he he constantly the judge is constantly asking him to speak up because he's so frail he makes these references to have to uh, war related injuries and so on and so that's you know that that's almost like the biggest stage, and he kind of you know it's his it's his it's his great greatest performance really, um, and he fools everybody. You know, he fools the jury, and and you know that's why it's such a great it's uh, it, you know it's such a great uh, counter argument, or why it was such an important cornerstone case in the abolition of capital punishment because Christie showed that juries can be fooled, judges can be fooled, lawyers can be fooled. Do you think that it was a class thing as well? You know that he had that era of respectability of education. Timothy Evans was an inarticulate working class man. De definitely, I think if when 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 you see monstrous acts, you go looking for a monster, and Christie looked so respectable. Uh, I mean, if you look close up, he was grubby, and it, the, the, you know the the persona wasn't perfect. There were cracks in it. And I think people who knew him, you know, very, were very much aware of those cracks. But I think for people who had a sort of fleeting uh, relationship with him and sort of, um, you know, they were fooled by the, uh, it, you know, we were kind of amused by this thing that he joined the War Reserve Police because it's almost like dressing up, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not real. I mean, he, he, you, you, just, you just turn up and say, I, I'm going to sign up and I'll give you a uniform that day. And so we love that aspect of him because it's another, it's another sort of onion skin layer to the persona. Anyway, there was somebody else over there, yes. From, from the Richard Attenborough, 10 Rolling to Place, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, I think the film starts with, with a murder and maybe ends with a murder, I'm not sure, but it's very much um, within the, 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 the uh, probably our episode two and, and, and at the beginning of our episode three, so it's a kind of smaller time frame and it's just Christie kind of understanding who he is and him being scary and manipulating Beryl in the house and Tim. Uh, so we've kind of gone a bit Tim wider was played by John than that. Hurt, wasn't Tim yeah. was played by John Hurt, mm -hmm. yeah. 
So we've gone to the wider, a kind of wider forum. We've got the three POVs, and we start earlier and finish later, essentially. Yeah. Anyone else? I need to ask you about episode three. I, I suspect that's going to be particularly horrific if it's, it's John pretty, Christie's. It's pretty scary, I have to say. Yeah, it is. Because you know, it, it's all been suggested, yeah. but it's building to it, something. It's, a, it's quite shocking, actually, because. There's something about holding back on seeing the reality of it that really is, makes it very kind of unsettling and really makes you feel sick when you see it in episode three because you've 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 got to know him as a character before you see him as a killer, which is quite unusual, I think, and th and it really kind of affects you in a, in 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 a big way. Yeah, it's a really powerful episode three. How much of the trial is represented in the? We've got quite a good chunk of the trial in episode three, and we would have, as I said earlier, we would have loved more. I mean, we could have written a whole episode on the trial. The trial was just fascinating. I mean, Christie was actually accused on the stand. I think he's the only, um, you know, killer who's accused in, accusing someone else of doing crimes that he's committed in history, and and he's actually accused himself on the stand, um, and and just completely, you know, it, it all just falls away. The, the the accusation just falls away in a really kind of heartbreaking way, and you just keep thinking, please ask more questions, please push harder, and you know, you can just get there if you just go that little mile, you know, that mile. Well, yeah, but it's but a different era. I mean, it's interesting how, at one point, Evan said. Christie did it, and then somebody said to him, "Why would Mr. Why would Mr. Christie kill your wife?" You know, and he said, "I don't, I don't know. I, I've got no, I've got, I can't offer an explanation." So even then, you know, fifty years after Jack the Ripper, it's the the idea that the motive was sexual um, and some necrophiliac actually um, was just not in people's consciousness. Um, and it's, you know, again, that, that feels like part of his good luck. You know, had he come along twenty years later, when people were starting to find labels for these things, and they were sort of more kind of in common parlance, or certainly within the police and the judiciary, I think he wouldn't. Mind you, it didn't stop Harold Shipman, did it? It didn't stop Shipman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely. It's funny you mentioned Shipman earlier. It's like, I think Shipman's another another great example of. Uh, and obviously he really was a doctor Christie was just pretending to be one but again you know you, he, he doesn't look like when you close your eyes and think of a murderer you don't think of Howard Shipman and you didn't think of Christie um, but you, on the subject of episode 3 I should I say you know it's one of the things I found looks really exciting tonight watching it and 3 is even more the case is that you, know, you write something and then you see it and it's always different and sometimes you're pleased and sometimes you're disappointed and I don't I can't you, you know I think it worked well on the page but I it's really quite extraordinary to be scared by something that you've written and I don't think I've ever experienced that before <laughs> because I think Tim Roth just takes it to such a yes he's so commanding and you know I've worked, you know, a lot of terrific actors who can do a great performance but there's few who can really inhabit so that actually Tim Roth the actor just is absent he, yeah. is, he just becomes that character uh, uh, and that is a really extraordinary thing to see and, and to witness and you know we are we we couldn't be more pleased about about that choice that you know that we made and how he's what he's done with the character. Yeah, um, there were points where I had to remind myself to breathe <laughs> during that. Um, anyone else got any uh, questions for you? Oh, sorry. Yes, no. Keep going. More, yeah. Um, there's a kind of tradition in American serial kill, killer dramas where there's two protagonists, the baddie and the cop, that's trying to find them. <laughs> and that gives you the dramatic arc. Did that exist in this case? And if not, well, if it did, why did you deliberately not 
Well, I've been writing cop drama since I was 26, so I was quite happy to not have a cop. What, what um, was there? One, was there one cop? Yeah, no, there, yeah, well, there were. There was. There was a cop. At, at the end, though, a, yeah. After, yeah. you know, after the, after Tim, but there wasn't. He wasn't really on Christie. Nobody was because they believed so strongly that it was Tim. They weren't looking for, you know. So until Barrisford Brown knocked through the wall and found the bodies in the kitchen, nobody was looking for another killer i mean the the relatives of of tim like you know the tim's half sister who i met said you know christy had and and uh, ethel had given her and her sister different stories about where tim and beryl had gone so they in the ether was this sense perhaps around notting hill or whatever that christy you know there was something odd about him or whatever because he had been accused and they must have been talking about it but again it, it was the class thing of you know they'd gone to the police with that information and the police hadn't listened and you know and you feel like if they'd pushed harder if they'd felt more confident to be able to push harder then and that's one of their kind of what well, that's one of her really upsetting things is that she couldn't have done more to stop what happened but she just couldn't it wasn't possible yeah, it fell on deaf ears didn't it with the interesting question about you know having a cop because I was just a bit slightly facetiously saying we didn't want one I mean it, it, you do understand when you don't have a, 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 a sort of goodie you do understand um, why the cop drama is such a sort of uh, a, a kind of evergreen staple because you know you it's like sort of carbohydrate protein you know it's like you don't want to be with the bad guy all the time it's very it's very wear it's very it's very draining it's kind of it's almost too much of a good thing and so you know, in a funny way, at the back of our minds, I think we, we, we like the idea that Ethel, in a very subtle way, she is a bit of an investigator. You know, she's looking under, under sofas. She's, she's trying to really find out who her husband is. So, you know, in a, in a funny way, we did... The idea of an investigative character was in the back of our minds with, with Ethel. And then, in, in, in to, to some extent, with Tim as well, you know. So, it's that thing that people are asking questions, and they're asking sometimes the right questions, but somehow they never quite find the right answer. And, and the way he kind of consistently kind of escaped disaster, you know, he's like a sort of cornered fox. You think, okay, they've got to get in that. He can't get away with that, you know, but, he's, but he does. Um, and, and, and I think really kind of uh, the, the fact that that, that that sort of trajectory ended up in the old, old Bailey Court number one is, is the thing that, you know, is exceptional about him. Um, and we were very sort of, um, you know, uh, we were very sort of faithful to the transcripts of the trial, and you literally see him. You literally, you know, they bring up his previous offences, and you literally think, okay, he, how could he get out of this? How could he possibly get out of this? And then he does, you know, and it, it, it's, it's something absolutely compelling about it. And his, it was his evidence that was crucial in getting Timothy Evans convicted, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, he, he had this whole thing about, about how, he, how he had to get, um, you, you know, he had all these illnesses, and he would constantly go and see his doctor uh, so he had this whole thing where he, you know, he said I'm so frail I couldn't lean down to pick up a pin and, he, and, he, and, and, and the judge kept saying to him you know would you like to stop Mr Christie are you okay all this um, and again that's something that, that, that Tim absolutely inhabited but I was just going to say that I just think that the characters are so you know incredibly kind of 
the, you know, t Tim was a kind of perfect fall guy for Christy and the characters in that house together, it's just kind of like a policeman couldn't come anywhere close to that. You know, the, 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 the combination of those characters and the, the, the power of those characters just didn't really, for me, didn't, there was no space for a policeman because I just wasn't really interested in the policeman. I just wanted to know what was going on inside this house. And yeah, yeah. After, after you find imagine police drama, sometimes you think, you know, the irony is the criminal's most interesting character normally, uh, and especially in the whodunit structure, which is yeah, not knocking the whodunit structure. It's, it's I've, I've written many episodes of shows like Silent Witness and stuff, and, but ultimately, you know, you, you unmask whoever it is, and you've got five minutes in the credits roll, and so you know, so in a sense, this was like a, a chance to go the other way, you know, to spend majority of the time digging into the persona and rather than just sort of unmasking you at the end that was a, that was a nice change yeah and um, we've we're actually over our time but just before we end I, j I just wanted to ask you has Timothy's half-sister seen it is she going to see it um she's seen some parts of it it's too, too emotional for her to watch the whole thing her son has watched it and is very happy with it yeah that's good yeah. well I'm oh I'm just about to, well, you, you'll have to wait for episode one first. Uh, with, um, the first date is, I think it's Tuesday the 29th of November on BBC One, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, at nine o'clock. That's episode one and the yeah, next the two Tuesdays. Yeah. After, yes, uh, well after the watershed. Uh, so thank you very much yeah, uh, for coming and yeah. thank you very thank much you. Um, to Ed and Katie.